Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And as we mentioned uh, last week, we are taking a bit of time off over the, over the over August, and so we are going to be rebroadcasting some of our previous episodes for you to enjoy with a little introduction where we think there's something to add. Um, and today's episode is all about space. Uh, it was a great conversation we had last year with the theologian um, Andrew Davison. Um, do you want to briefly kind of summarise where that episode came from, Dad? What was the kind of inis- instigating factor for us sitting down with Andrew? Yeah, so... Um, I've always been fascinated by astronomy. In fact, you know, long before I thought of becoming a doctor, the idea of being an astronomer was was something that was really attractive to me. And so I've, I've maintained a kind of amateur interest in it. And the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope uh, occurred um, last year. And therefore, it, that was a kind of highlight, particularly once the first images started coming mm. back and and um the james webb telescope has turned out to be astonishingly successful in fact far more successful than even the um the people who've been behind it and the designers and technicians and technologists thought and, and it's been ever since beaming back the most astron- extraordinary images but also just data um and so um it was really the james webb telescope that what what strikes me, and, and it still continues to strike me, is that um, there's such fascination uh, in the popular culture with astronomy and, you know, um, a lot of interest in NASA and uh, these new astounding images and what they tell us about the early universe and star formation and galaxies and black holes and so on. And yet, in general, um, the Christian church seem largely uninterested um and particularly pastors and teachers um it's almost and yet you know so many of the people who uh secular people are fascinated by astronomy are basically believe it's all just a complete chance you know uh, meaningless you know display and and the people who actually believe in a creator the people who believe that this is demonstrating the glory and beauty and the mind of the creator <laughs> seem to be almost uninterested in in what the telescope is showing them and i i just think that's really curious and 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 tragic actually because i think it impoverishes so many christians understanding of of, of how, who god is and of his uh ultimate power and, and majesty and and you know it, it does strike me that um in in the revelation in the in the accounts revelation four and five in in the account of a description of the throne room of heaven where the entire cosmos is there before the the uh the the one who sits on the throne um that actually one of the songs they sing is the song to creation for you know for you created all things and by your will they were created so that the song of creation is central uh, in the in the description of the throne room of heaven, so anyway, that's that's a sort of <laughs> a reason why I think it's really important to uh, think about um, 
uh, astronomy about the, the but in particular part of the purpose of of these uh, telescopes is to look for evidence of life that's and, right yeah uh, so that whole thing about astrobiology and it turns out there's even astrotheology and that's really <laughs> what andrew davison is one of the few world experts in this field that's right yeah he's a really fascinating individual isn't he because he kind of has a natural sciences background and then he's now he's a kind of professional theologian at cambridge but he went and did a whole kind of multi-year kind of research project giving some time in america i think he was even the kind of embedded theologian at theologian in residence at nasa for a while during his research to, to produce a book which is called astrobiology and christian doctrine exploring the implications of life in the universe which he had just kind of was writing or had finished when we spoke last year. And it's actually just come out in, uh, last month in July. Um, and it's all really kind of asking, you know, what if, what if James Webb does manage to find evidence of intelligent, sentient life out there in the universe? Um, you know, that's incredibly exciting scientific discovery. But what does it mean for us as Christians and theologians, you know? what do do these people are they also made in the image of god you know do they do they have their own kind of jesus or incarnation and redemption story you know are are they should they be seen as kind of people that we need to go and evangelize to are they like an unreached tribe in the amazon and and all these questions and it's interesting because some uh critics of christianity have argued that if that was the case and if science started to demonstrate that there were other uh intelligent life forms in in the in the cosmos, this would be the death knell for Christianity. You know that that basically um, Christians would have to hang up, uh, you know, give up because this would now the whole basis on which the Christian faith uh, is founded would would be called into question. Well, and of course, um, other people have criticised that, and Andrew Davison is certainly one of them. Mm. And that's potentially why evangelicals don't really think about space is because we've become too interested in the idea of the kind of uniqueness of human beings and our preeminent space in created order. And it's very difficult to hold on to those ideas when you get up there hundreds of miles in space and you see billions of stars in a single, you know, um, vista and you see that Earth is a tiny blue dot and you realise actually we are very, 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 very small in an unbelievably infinite not infinite, but incredibly large universe. God made it all um, and, and reconciling our smallness. And yet what does that change? How we understand our preeminence in creation and that kind of thing, I think is the other, one of the other conversations we have with Andrew. So um, yeah, it's a, it was a really interesting chat with him. I was quite surprised by his kind of, uh, I guess, the relaxed approach to the possibility of finding life as a theologian. Um, and he really has done done the work probably that the world's leading expert at least in the english language in this issue about astrobiology and christian doctrine so do look up his book but also uh, i hope you enjoy the rest of of this episode from last year you're listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, great to have you with us. Uh, as always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined as ever by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. And we're really excited to have a guest with us this week. Uh, we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Andrew Davison, who's the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Andrew, welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, what that means and your, and your work? Thank you very much for having me. 
I have this position in Cambridge in the Divinity Faculty, thinking about science from a theological perspective. I've been there about eight years now, and it's one of the relatively few permanent positions around the world in theology faculties thinking about science. And it was endowed by an author that some of your listeners may know, Susan Howitch, who set it up about 30 years ago. And unusually, she named it after the fictional city in which her novels are set, uh, rather than naming it after herself. So unless there's a Narnia chair or something like that (laughs) elsewhere in the world, I suppose I've probably got the only position named after a a fictional city or place. Amazing. And and today uh, we're really excited because we're going to be talking about um, space, cosmology, astrophysics. Um, Could you just share a little bit about how you first got involved in that work and how that intersects with your theology? Well, I first got interested in cosmology and astrophysics through a set of conferences that were thinking about this central Christian and actually Abrahamic more widely uh, idea of creation out of nothing. The idea that everything about everything is created uh, by God. And I was asked to speak to that uh, in Oxford and then in Notre Dame in the States from a scientific perspective. So that got me interested in cosmology and the ideas of scientific accounts of the origins of things. But my thought tends to track more towards biology. And in the last six years or so, I've been looking at this combination of astrophysics and biology, sometimes called astrobiology, the capacity for the universe to support life. And that really um, blossomed when I applied for a visiting position in Princeton, which was a, a wonderful scheme funded by NASA, amongst other people, to think about the societal implications of astrobiology, it was called. Uh, and most of us were, were theologians. And I did nine months in Princeton on that topic. And uh, since then, have been writing a book on what the idea of life elsewhere in the universe might mean for Christian theology, which is now happily, safely with the publishers and should be out uh, later this year. So I, I continue to be interested in these questions. And more recently, we might talk about this. There's a new centre in Cambridge on origins of life, which I'm playing a part in. And so I think this topic will feature in my thinking and writing for quite a uh, long time to come. Brilliant. Well, you're certainly the the biggest theological brain we've had on matters of life and death so far. So we're really pleased to be able to kind of plumb into some of those deep thoughts you've been pondering in both in the States and here. Um, uh, The kind of peg for today is we wanted to talk about um, the James Webb Space Telescope, which some listeners might be aware of. But if you're not, it's it's basically the successor to the quite famous Hubble Space Telescope. It's the most largest, most powerful telescope that's ever been made. And it was launched last year in December. And, and as we record this, we are now just a few days away from the first ever images being sent back to Earth and revealed from Webb. Uh, in fact, there's a countdown on the NASA website I'm looking at right now. And we are five days, five hours, 54 minutes and nine seconds, eight seconds, seven seconds away from the first image. Which has ever been ever been released? It's a remarkable um, scientific achievement, and and I've always had a, a sort of fascination with uh, astronomy and cosmology. In fact, um, when I initially started uh, left school, I my idea was to become a cosmologist, and I started studying physics um, for the first year at university. And it was only uh, then that I had a kind of life crisis and 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 changed to medicine but I've ever since I've had this kind of background fascination with the stars and um, have been uh, very excited and interested to to learn about the James Webb 
uh, telescope, which is an extraordinary scientific achievement. And um, it's one of those uh, remarkable things that human beings can do um, in, in that it's a, it's a massive collaborative uh, enterprise between many different uh, individuals and uh, between different nations, uh, huge amounts of money, uh, official government money gone into it. Uh, and it shows just what human beings can do in terms of exploring the the cosmos when they all get together and it's undoubtedly going to give a whole stream of of, of new information about about cosmology about the, the the universe and be able to see right back to the very earliest phases just after the big bang mm. yeah i was looking on on the the kind of the, the james webb website and it just kind of describes its kind of goals uh, as kind of fourfold um, it's going to search for light from the first stars and galaxies that formed in the universe after the Big Bang it's going to study galaxy formation and evolution trying to understand star formation and planet formation and finally to study planetary systems and the origins of life so a fairly um, daunting list of, of projects it's kind of set itself there and, and obviously it goes way beyond simple kind of astrophysics and cosmology it, it intersects with with questions about life, the universe, who we are, and, and Andrew, obviously, it cuts into theology as well. Yes, I think there we should put particular emphasis on these explorations of the very early universe, because this does touch upon Christian accounts of where everything comes from. And sometimes we hear scientists saying that because there's some scientific account of the very early moments of the universe this how somehow displaces the idea of god as creator i think that very much isn't the case uh, we could we could talk about that but that's one part of what the space telescopes looking at of course my interest particularly is on the search for other life and here it's going to do at least two important things it's going to massively increase the range of stars that we can look at trying to find planets and it's also going to make the observation of those uh, those stars much more accurate and precise so that we're going to be able to start um, much better than before detecting what gases are in the atmospheres of planets around other stars and that is our best hope for a kind of telltale a kind of giveaway about the presence of life if you looked at the earth from a long way away you would see that the mixture of gases in our atmosphere is pretty odd it's not the sort of combination of gases that you would expect to stick around. Something's obviously affecting the atmosphere and displacing the atmosphere from equilibrium. We know that that's life. And if we see something like that elsewhere, that's going to be our best indication of life elsewhere. Hmm. So is it really a kind of credible possibility that, that at some point in the next kind of 10, 20, 30 years, however long Webb is looking, it might be the kind of instrument that sends us back the first clues that somewhere else in the universe there is a world like Earth that has managed to sustain life? Yes, I think it's the first instrument that has a, a good prospect of being able to do that. And this ability to look at the gases in the atmospheres of planets really shifts things because up till now, I suppose, we'd imagined that if we were going to detect life elsewhere in the universe, it would be sentient, advanced technological life, because we would be probably detecting its radio broadcasts. I suppose people think also about, about visits, but um, more likely that we would uh, detect uh, 
electromagnetic waves coming from the planets from something like uh, radio broadcasts. And um, this really shifts it because if we can detect life in the atmosphere, the composition of the atmosphere of other planets, then we're thinking about you know, just a planet that was covered in algae, for instance. It wouldn't have to be uh, technologically advanced at all. So if we think about that in terms of our own planet's lifetime, we'd really be able to detect the presence of technology on Earth for the past, I don't know, 100 years, 150 years, something like that. Um, but we would be able to detect the perturbation of the atmosphere for a billion or two years. Uh, so it really means that we're not looking for this tiny fraction of any habited planets, but for really anywhere life has taken over and is starting to uh, affect the atmosphere. And of course, we, we don't know what the, the proportion of, of any planets that are inhabited are, but the other th thing we should throw into this equation is just how enormous the, the universe is. Um, so uh, about around about 100 or 200 million, uh, do I mean that? No, billion, 200, 100 billion stars in our galaxy, about the same number of galaxies in the observable universe. The number of places where it's possible that there could be life is just uh, incomprehensibly large. And that's immediately a sort of issue, isn't it, from a Christian point of view? Because, uh, you know, in, in Christian history, the first, I suppose, 1500 years of, of, of since the dawn of, of Christian history, had human beings always saw themselves as, as the centre of the universe uh, and as the centre of God's concerns. And then it seems like there's been this sort of progressive displacement from the centre, first of all, with Copernicus and the, the Earth going around the sun, rather, and then, you know, more discoveries about uh, the, the nature of life and, and the idea of Darwinian evolution displacing us from being a, a special kind of species, and, and then the discovery of the size of the galaxy, and then the fact that there were other galaxies. Everything seems to just point to the insignificance of humanity. Is that a, a theme that you've wrestled with as a theologian? Well, indeed, that comment has been made, and it is an important thing for us to address. But I think we can get at it from two different angles. And one is whether the Christian faith really does put humanity at the centre. On the other hand, we can ask whether our location in the universe is really that significant, and whether what is so special about human beings really rests on completely different foundation than that. So on the first front, um, I think it might sound like a platitude, but it's pretty important to say that for Christianity, it's God that stands at the centre of everything. And in fact, placing ourselves at the centre of things is pretty close to the definitive sin, you know, the sin of pride or hubris. So... Um, then we, we can clearly modify the terms and say, oh, well, amongst creatures, we think that human beings are the centre of everything. And of course, that's an important uh, modification. But I, I think that it is really important that we say that no, everything is about God and God is at the centre of all things. And as soon as we start getting worried that we're not at the centre of things, then there's something a bit spiritually unhealthy going on there. Uh, the other two things that come to mind on that front and I'd be really glad to hear what you think about this, um, is the first one is the place of angels in the Christian imagination. Uh, and it almost doesn't really matter whether they do feature in uh, Christian belief today. I mean, they do in mine, but uh, and I think probably that's the, the, the case uh, quite, 
quite generally. But the important thing is that the Christian vision of the universe has not been one in which human beings are the only intelligent, rational, you know, gl glorious created beings. Um, and I'm not saying for a moment that angels are aliens or aliens are angels, just this question of how we conceive of, of our place in the whole. We're not, tra traditionally in much Christian theology, we're thought to be somewhere around the middle. Uh, in fact, theologians have quite liked the idea that God became incarnate as a human being precisely because we're in the middle of things and combine uh, the materiality of one half of creation with the uh, intellectual nature of of these spiritual beings and we kind of straddle that in the middle so uh, the fact that Christianity has entertained the idea of angels suggests that we should have space in our imagination for other intelligent things and I'd also uh, point to the book of Job which I think one of the great moments in the book of Job is where God responds to Job by just taking him on a sort of safari of of the of the created world including many creatures that we recognize planets and constellations and so on and perhaps some uh, creatures that we don't recognize but it's absolutely about knocking Job away from the center. Job uh, is uh, told by God there's lots of other stuff out there that God has made and that God is interested in and it would be rude to say I suppose Job is put in his place but there's something like that going on. So I would say uh, the, to think about angels and the book of Job would be a, quite a good way forward. That's really interesting. Uh, it's um, and I, I I absolutely understand what you're saying. It reminds me of an impression when I first read Lord of the Rings and this whole great saga, and it seemed to me that in many ways the hobbits are a kind of a, a representative of human beings, and and you've got all these other wonderful beings and terrible beings and you've got the Ents and you've got you know the, the Nazgul and all kinds of amazing things and then you've got the Hobbits who are very sort of prosaic and just like their four or five meals a day whatever it is and and a <laughs> pipe of tobacco and so on and yet who turn out to play an absolutely pivotal part in the in the entire drama and 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 I certainly felt that leading reading Lord of the Rings it's just a reminder that that there are so many other things going on in in the cosmos and in the spiritual universe that we just don't know anything about it really fascinated me what you were saying uh andrew because it, it's there's there's often this idea i think it goes back to obviously the kind of famous story of galileo's conflict with the catholic church that that some sense kind of space exploration and cosmology is antagonistic to kind of christian faith whereas it seems like what you're saying actually is that our better understanding of the universe and our relative kind of insignificance or our lack of centrality is actually a really useful process for us as Christians because it has kind of dethroned us and and kind of counteracted against that kind of sinful idolatry about placing ourselves as the most important as the most as the most central figures. I think that that question of exploration and Christian support for it and so on is a is a really good uh question. Before I get onto it, I'm just going to address, say something briefly about the other half of this question. So on the one hand, there is this sort of de-centering of the, of the human being. But I think the, the other side of a response is to say, place isn't really that important and size isn't that important. So uh, G.K. Chesterton says somewhere that uh, he thinks that the association of value with size is just basically vulgar uh, and, and stupid. Uh, and um, and I 
think it, it throws us back to look at human life and say, what is it about human life that outshines all of the stars? Uh, what is it that happens on this planet that is of such extraordinary value? And I would point to uh, you know, love and kindness uh, and the, the, the drama of salvation, uh, human creativity, uh, the, the arts, um, scientific exploration for that matter, uh, that that and within the wider frame of life seems to me a tremendously exalted, glorious thing, a great gift, the Christian uh, says, received from the hands of God, uh, which is, I just sim- I think, simply not erased or devalued at all by the idea that we're not at the centre of things or that our planet isn't particularly big or anything like that. It seems to me um, that there, there are two responses. There's a way in which we embrace this idea of um, not being at the centre of things, but then we should also push back and say that doesn't mean that all of these things that we celebrate, that we in which we see the image of God, for instance, are actually any less important. So we, we'll talk about ex- space exploration. I, I, uh, I do want to do that, but I think it's important to put that other side in place. Hmm. It raises the question, doesn't it, in terms of creation, but it is why God made it this way. Why? And is that a question which is just above our pay grade, you know, to say, why have this ridiculous profusion of of stars and galaxies? Um, are we entitled to ask that question? Or, or maybe it's like Job, that in the end we're told, you know, who do you think you are to, to question me? Well, there's a scientific response to make to that, which is you need to have a pretty big universe in order for there to be a prospect of, um, of life at all. So you'd want to talk to someone more trained in physics than I am to get the absolute detail on this. But uh, if you're going to have a universe that uh, lasts long enough to be able to get the formation of elements and so on, then you need a certain balance of fundamental constants. And they're going to give you a very big universe. So it sort of comes as a package deal, really. If you're going to have the conditions for life, you're going to have a very large universe. Um, And then from a theological perspective, uh, there's a long tradition of saying that the way in which the plenitude of God is going to be in any way reflected or borne witness to in creation is going to be through multiplicity. So if you have... The, the boundless, infinite God, then obviously creation can't in any way make an exhaustive representation of that. But there's this very deep conviction, you find it uh, beyond Christianity, you find it in Plato, for instance, that there's a sort of um, manifoldness to creation because that is its best best uh, homage, as it were, to the um, to the plenitude of God. So from a, from a doctrine of creation perspective... I think that we are really well set up to expect creation to be varied and variegated and you know multiplicitous uh, precisely on those terms. I, I think from the perspective of the doctrine of creation, uh, this, this seems pretty harmonious to me. And one of the things that fascinates me is that in contemporary in much of contemporary Christianity, obviously one doesn't want to make too much sweeping generalizations, but it, it does seem to me that certainly in a lot of Protestant Christianity, the whole concept of creation, the centrality of creation and the doctrine of creation is very much underplayed. And, and, and hence, 
what we're talking about today doesn't seem very central to to most Christians' preoccupations. I mean, why do you think that is? Why why has the doctrine of creation been so underplayed in 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 in, in Christianity in, uh, over the last century? Say. Well, I think you've put your finger on something in saying that it has been underdeveloped or it's not you know, featured in our preaching um, and in our exploration as much as it perhaps did in the past. I think you're, you're right also to say this is something of a Protestant um, gap. Uh, I think that the doctrine of creation is more uh, uninterrupted, receives more attention perhaps in Orthodox and um, uh, Catholic traditions. But I would say that happily, your comment is also beginning to be a bit out of date, that there is a real resurgence of interest in the doctrine of creation across the board and in those places perhaps where it has been a little bit neglected. Um, and I suppose something that's going on there is the Protestant concern about sin and salvation. And that has just seemed to be so important that other things have, have been pushed into the background. That's uh, understandable. Uh, I think also you've got Karl Barth in the 20th century reacting against natural theology and the idea that one can just read off who God is by looking at creation. Uh, and he, uh, again, there's something of a, uh, I wouldn't say a backlash to that, but the ideas of natural theology are certainly coming back into, Christi into Christian and, and, and Protestant uh, circles. But Bart was onto something. Uh, what we needed in the 20th century, what we always need, is God as revealed in, in Scripture. And uh, he was right, I think, to say, if you just try to extrapolate from uh, from creation and you just build your own God, which is uh, uh, not a good thing to do. But I think Bart's uh, witness has had its influence, it's done its work, uh, but you know, even Bart was very interested in creation, being such a, a truly uh, great, great uh, theologian. And of course, the environmental crisis also is putting the doctrine of creation uh, back on the agenda. So I think that there's a really something in what you say, but also already the, quite a strong beginning of a corrective. It's because often, I mean, I'm interested to say whether you ever come across this, but I feel like there is a strain of thought, maybe even particularly strong among kind of evangelical Christianity, which which says, you know, this kind of high-minded scientific exploration is a, is a bit of a sidetrack and as you say we need to be focused on saving souls preaching the word and keeping very much grounded literally grounded on earth uh you know the vast sums on the team website could that be spent better on social action or on church planting all that kind of stuff and there's a kind of skepticism of the that there is any real spiritual value in this kind of far-sighted scientific exploration like if you were if you were confronted with that view uh, how would you respond briefly? Well, I might say uh, good luck to you trying to get the NASA budget applied to uh, <laughs> church planting. Um, well, I would say that there are uh, a couple of questions there. I mean, one is just about the um, the ethical question of what you spend your money on. And I'm not primarily an ethicist, and I think it'd be a fascinating topic to, you know, to get an ethicist uh, and onto your show and to ask these sorts of questions about the allocation of money. Um, and they're certainly really valid questions. My response would be to say that in the grand scale of things, the money that we spend on science is, is relatively small. And I think that it is integral to our humanity, integral to 
uh, are bearing the image of God indeed to have this sort of capacity to explore and understand the world. In biblical terms, sometimes been expounded through the naming of the animals by uh, by Adam. That seemed to be a sort of proto-scientific uh, act. Mm. So I think there is something theologically th- theological to be said about the scientific endeavour as part of what it means for us to be humans and made in the image of God. And way down history, you will find Christian support for science in exactly those terms. So you mentioned Galileo. Uh, he ran into trouble with one pope, but another pope was bankrolling his scientific uh, explorations. Uh, we might think of John Wilkins, who was Bishop of Chester, Master of Trinity College, uh, Cambridge as well, and one of the founders of the Royal Society. And he he asks about life in the universe. Uh, he thinks there's life on the moon, and he was responding to that. And he says, well, the scriptures don't tell us about these things because it would just be too interesting and therefore too uh, distracting. So he's a wonderful uh, kind of geeky scientist there, uh, and he knows that he would be distracted if there was too much science in the Bible. So he says, God talks to us about the things that are really important, relationship with him, relationship with one another, sin and salvation. But then doesn't say that these, he doesn't say these other things are unimportant. He just says, God's going to say, just get at it yourself. You know, I've given you the capacity to explore and reflect upon the world. Go out and do it. And Wilkins saw that as integral to what it means for us to be human beings. So I agree if we went through some enormous uh, economic collapse, we'd have to think about how uh, money is being allocated. But uh, my my line on this would be just we should tax very wealthy people more than we do. That would give (laughs) us more than enough money to respond to uh, humanitarian crises and also uh, to carry on with these scientific explorations. Well, it's all right for an impoverished theologian, isn't it, to say tax the wealthy people? But no, I I, I don't have to say I agree to. Well, Cambridge. uh, Anybody with a permanent position at the University of Cambridge is in one of is in the world's you know very top most wealthy people. Uh, We need to recognise that. Sure. I mean, it was it was an astronomer, wasn't it? Uh, Kepler, I think, who coined the phrase about you know thinking God's thoughts after after him. Um, And so, I guess there has been this strong theme, as you know, about that by, you know, inquiring into science is not some kind of secular ideal, but is actually like a profoundly theological act in, a, in, a, in and of itself, regardless of, kind of the benefits it might we might derive from it. Uh, yes, and uh, I, I completely uh, accept that. I think also on a, a more theological uh, point of view, we, we can't neglect the doctrine of creation because... We want to be able to give a, a theologically informed, a Christian scriptural account of of the world around us. So, I think the idea that you just you neglect Christ, uh, you reject Christ, uh, creation and just think about sin and salvation, uh, even for the most evangelistically minded Christian, that is to neglect one of the ways in which we have of building bridges to our culture about helping people to see what it means to see the world in a Christian way. So I think even if someone was being uh, pretty um, ruthlessly pragmatic from an evangelistic or apologetic perspective about where one spends one's time reading theology or whatever, uh, and I would say that's not the only thing that should guide in where we spend our time, but even from that perspective, I think giving up on the doctrine of creation would be a mistake. 
I think it's something else which really uh, is so wonderful about uh, creation is just the way that it's, it gives us this enormous sense of joy and wonder. Just remember somebody who said there's only fundamentally three prayers, please, thank you, and wow. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's the kind of wow factor and, and the joy of just um, of seeing what the extraordinary beauty, complexity, wonder profundity of creation which which must be an integral part of the way that god has has made us to to respond and 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 therefore it's a real sadness isn't it that so many christians seem to fail to to recognize that well i it's not my place to uh i don't particularly want to cast it in terms of criticizing anybody but i do think that the idea that that doctrines, that areas of theology can somehow be separated from one another, misses a lot of their interest. And fundamentally, Christian thought should hang together. And we should think about redemption in terms of creation and creation in terms of redemption. We should think about the beginning of all things in terms of the end of all things and vice versa. And I I think at the absolute core of my Christian faith is the, is the sense that the world is extraordinary and it comes to me as a gift. Mm. Uh, and mentioned Chesterton again, he said, uh, a gift implies a giver. He had this very strong sense that the world came to him in a gifted way and that implied a giver. And so for me, the, the doctrine of creation is just uh, you know, absolutely integral to everything. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. But we wanted to really dive into this concept you mentioned briefly of astrobiology. Um, that, that's the idea, correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrew, that's the kind of study of, of bio- biology, life, uh, as uh, in the in the cosmos, um, and often understood as as kind of thinking about what happens if we discover aliens. Um, that's one of the things the Webb Telescope is looking for. But but you you've been telling us that actually it's the most likely thing we find is not kind of you know humanoid, grey skinned with huge eyes, aliens of kind of sci-fi lore, but perhaps a much less developed life form. Is that right? Yes. If you think about the history of life on Earth, sentient life has only arisen in the last tiniest fraction so we have to imagine that most life elsewhere if there is any is not going to have reached self-awareness or however it is that you understand uh, sentience Um, and in fact we didn't know until relatively recently whether there was any prospect of there being life elsewhere in the universe and the the great moment was in 1995 when Didier Kahlo and Michael Major discovered a planet around another star in 1995. And until then, we didn't really know whether there were very many other planets at all. There were two competing models for how solar systems formed. One, they would just form naturally out of dust when you're in the very process of making a star. And Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, was one of the first exponents of that theory. So on that view, there will be planets all over the place. But the other view was that you only got a solar system when one star crashed into another, or a, plan, a, a comet uh, crashed into a star. And of course, when you think about the enormous distances between stars, that's going to happen unbelievably rarely. And on that view, 
we might be the only solar system in the whole galaxy. And that second view uh, held uh, primary place in the 19th century and into the 20th century. It was kind of beginning to be displaced through the 20th century, but it wasn't until we discovered a planet around another star that we really knew that there were going to be any. And I think even the people who favoured that um, collapse of dust clouds view have been really surprised by just how many stars have planets. They just seem to be, if not exactly ubiquitous, they're just everywhere. And plenty of them Earth-like in terms of you know temperature and being rocky and that kind of distance from the sun. So um, last time I did the maths on this, I think it comes up to there being about 16 billion billion Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. And that could be wrong by a couple of factors of 10. But you think about 16 billion billion Earth-like planets around sun-like stars in the observable universe. That's the figure that gets me interested in this work uh, with that many places that could be cradles for life. I think we've got to think theologically about what we do if we open the newspaper, as you say, tomorrow, and there's evidence. Are we getting to the point where you now think it's more likely than not, but you expect at some point, maybe not in your lifetime, but at some point we will find life given the, as you say, the, the almost incomprehensible number of Earth-like planets there are? Well, scientists talk about the N equals one problem, you know, number equals one. The number of examples of life that we have is one. Um, so it's quite difficult to extrapolate from one, but it seems to me that life would, the origins of life would have to be sort of unbelievably unlikely, you know, one in 16 billion billion of a, of a chance uh, for us to be the only uh, case. And we do know that life got started on Earth surprisingly early um, when we were just coming out of the Hadean epoch so the Hades-like, hell-like period of volcanoes and bombardment and uh, the earth seemingly almost impossibly un uninhabitable and we're just getting out of that when life seems to get started so that's maybe one other data point that, that life seems to have got started here pretty much as, as soon as it could do really um, I don't know how uh, significant that is, but I think with those sorts of numbers, we have to uh, en really entertain the possibility that there's, that there's life out there. And as you say, quite a lot of it might be just something more like bacteria or something like that. Um, and a Christian thought tends to gravitate towards thinking about, well, what about other people like us? I'm working with quite a few scientists now in Cambridge with this, we have a new Leverhulme Centre for life in the universe, thinking about the origins and distribution of life. Um, and they're really interested in just the transition out of the non-living into the living. And if I were, if they knew I was talking too much about uh, sentient beings, they would say that I was running too far into the future. Uh, and I certainly want to work with them on that origins of life question. But I think that the Christian theologian is naturally going to be interested in the drama of personhood and sin and salvation and so on and we we can't help ourselves but think about what if there are other creatures a bit like us but of course the the very nature of 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 the most basic forms of life is still exquisitely complex isn't it because and this is one of the fascinating things that every single life form that's ever been found on uh, on the planet uses exactly the same genetic code uses the same uh, mechanisms for uh, storing information and so on and therefore the biological 
conclusion is that every single uh, living organism and the entire planet came from one, descended from one cell. Um, and so I, for some Christians, this is a very strong argument for intelligent design, isn't it? That, that, uh, that the exquisite complexity of the um, cellular mechanisms must have meant that, that God, it couldn't have happened by random forces. God must have intervened supernaturally and, uh, and instigated life on this one planet. And therefore, it's entirely up to God's sovereignty as to whether he chooses to instigate, uh, initiate life on another planet. What, what would your perspective be on, on that kind of argument? Well, the point about everything being descended from one ancestor, that is what all the biology points to. I think we should be clear about what that means. It doesn't mean that there was only a single cell on the Earth at that point. There are billions and billions of cells on the Earth at that point. It's just that uh, in the contingencies and vagaries of history since, uh, it's, it's this cell's ancestors that have gone on to survive and populate the planet rather than the others. Um, so... Uh, that ancestor, he's sometimes, it's sometimes called Luca, the last universal common ancestor, uh, is a very long way down the line from the origins of life. And scientists naturally think that there is a scientific story that takes you by evolutionary processes from whatever the very beginning is, the bare chemicals there are, through to that, um, that creature which, uh, as it happens is the uh, last universal uh, common ancestor. So I have to say I am not an enthusiast for intelligent design arguments, uh, partly because it relies on a God of the gaps approach. Uh, and I think that makes Christianity vulnerable. If you're saying, ah, well, this doesn't work unless God is uh, intervening in some sort of way, and then you find out how it could work, then uh, the Christian is left vulnerable. It's also just, in terms of my temperament, my, my intellectual outlook, I want to find God working in everything. And there's a very strong sense down Christian history that God does work in everything, in it being what it is. It doesn't have to stop being what it is for God to be acting in it. God is the source and origin uh, of all things. So uh, to sort of venture a really terrible pun here, I, I want to be able to find God in the whole with a W rather than the whole without a W. I'm not looking for some kind of gap that can't be explained by science. And I say, ah, oh, there's God. I want to see the whole glorious unfolding story that science tells us and see God in that whole H-W-H-O-L-E. Uh, uh, sorry, it's a rather corny pun there, but I, I think it's, uh, it's an important point. And I always want to give science a run for its money uh, before I would invoke uh, some sort of miraculous account. And so if, so if we've discovered this bacteria or algae, let's say, um, uh, it's not sentient kind of personhood-like life, but it is obviously an enormous scientific discovery. Um, you're, you're a kind of theologian of, of the kind of natural sciences as well. Is there a particular kind of part of your theology that you would have to rip up and write and start again? Or would, do you think we could integrate the fact that there is a planet so many light years away that has algae on into our ex, ex, existing kind of theological framework quite, quite harmoniously? I can't see that, well, almost really anything that, that this is going to throw at us, sentient or not sentient, 
is going to cause me to rip up theology. And I say that not just defensive, not at all defensively, but having spent quite a lot of time in the last six years thinking about it. So I hope that's some uh, reassurance. But certainly the fact that there's uh, single-celled or uh, creatures elsewhere, it seems to me uh, no, no theological threat at all. And we talked a little bit last time about the doctrine of creation and about this idea that you get down history of, a, of an expectation and a celebration of the multiplicity and variedness of creation. You know, stars and planets, moons, uh, all the rest, and life, because we, you know, if the world is created by the infinite, boundless, plenitudinous, perfectly good uh, God, then there's just this sort of ripple of that, a sort of the even the faintest echo of that in the world is going to be uh, only there through this kind of riotous multiplicity, and that. All of these finite things, uh, even together, can't reflect the glory of God. But because they're all finite, uh, you, you get this manifoldness and variation uh, that, that, that together bears some witness uh, to, to the greatness of God. Um, and of course, one of the things that theologians have wanted to say about God is that God is living. That's one of the great attributes of God, is for God to be the living God. Uh, and therefore, for that to be manifest, witnessed to, imaged in the world uh, in in many, many different ways, seems to me, as a Christian believer, uh, not only plausible, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go so far to say what one would expect, but, um, yeah, maybe that. Maybe the, the Christian can go so far as to say that not only is it not surprising, but it's even fits beautifully with the theological picture that the world should be full of life, reflecting the life of the living God. So what about intelligent life then? I had the privilege of having a conversation with Martin Rees, the previous astronomer royal, who is fascinated by um, the idea of intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos. And he's told me that he thought the most likely thing that would happen is that we, some in our space exploration, would come across some kind of uh, machines which were left behind by um, some intelligent biological uh, species uh, elsewhere in the in in the galaxy you know the, the the biological species would die out very rapidly but the artifacts if it was an intelligent uh, species it, it like us it would make satellites and ex, uh, exploratory um, rockets and things like that, and that they would carry on going through the cosmos for, you know, millions of years, and eventually uh, we would run across them. And so that would be our first contact, he thought. So, you know, let's just do the thought experiment. NASA announced that they've picked up this artifact, and it, and it's, it's, it must have come from an intelligent alien species, um, but that could have been millions of years ago. Um, how would... Uh, orthodox mainstream Christian theology deal with that? Well, we've got there both the question of there being other intelligent life in the universe, but there's also the the hint of tragedy um, around what you've just described there with that sense of this species having died out. So I suppose we could come across a satellite uh, as we've launched satellites into space 
uh, and that wouldn't necessarily be any witness to whether life had died out on Earth or not. Uh, but there is something, I think, quite eschatological about this idea that species don't last forever, and that raises, I think, really interesting questions about life on Earth, um, and you know, we could talk about that. Uh, there's also the, you know, the Fermi paradox. Where are they all? Um, why have we not detected them? And one response to that is uh, the rather bleak uh, uh, diagnosis that when creatures get to a certain stage of development where they basically have the capacity to destroy themselves, they do. And that's why you don't get these uh, proliferation of, in, of advanced uh, civilizations in the universe. So there's, there's something uh, rather gloomy about that. And we could uh, talk about that. It might uh, encourage us to uh, not be complacent about disarmament and the way which we treat the earth, for instance. Um, but if there was other intelligent life in the universe, I would not find my theology at all threatened. And I think it'd be quite interesting for me to pose that back to you and ask, uh, on what grounds do you think that uh, theology might face challenges? And then we could talk about those themes. Yes. Yeah, so I, mean, I think... Go on, Tim. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the, the thing that... I think that's a great question, Andrew, and, and the kind of immediate thing that jumps to my mind is is incarnation and and the imago dei the image of god I, you know it's my understanding i'm not a theologian my understanding of you know of that the kind of christian story about our created order is that humans are set apart from all other life including intelligent sentient life dolphins and dogs and things whatever sentience they might have because we are we alone in created order are made in the image of god and that you know you know some people talk about the language of soul and spirit but fundamentally it's about that's you know we we reflect something of, of the eternal god in our kind of created order at, at, in a way that a tree or a dolphin doesn't and so my immediate question is do we see these other aliens this intelligent life as akin to to a dolphin you know that is clearly created and is alive but is is not equivalent in kind of spiritual terms to us because they don't they're not made of the image of God or would we see them as kind of fellow image bearers like us? Hmm. Well, the image of God is a great topic to talk about here, and I think that there would be people who would push back on what you've said and want to try to group some of these creatures that you've talked about more uh, with us than uh, separate from us. So, dolphins uh, potentially. Uh, crows and rooks and so on, the corvids, uh, maybe octopuses and so on. So I think uh, that will be an interesting conversation. I, I err in your direction, I think, in saying these are glorious things. They might have forms of uh, mental capacity that are fantastic that we don't need to deny. I don't see in them quite the same, well, at all, the same capacity for language uh, and so on. So I, I, let, let's, let's uh, for the sake of the argument, uh, put them on one side and say that human beings really do stand out amongst all the creatures on earth as, as uh, being in the image of God. As I say, some people would push back on that, but let's, let's take that line. I think there's just a really significant distinction to be made in between saying that the Imago Dei, and we could talk about what it means, that the image of God uh, is only in human beings. And another thing, which is to say, that what makes us in the image of God is that other things aren't. Uh, maybe I've, put that as, I've not put that as clear as I might do. Um, on one view, you say we're in the image of God and perhaps other things are too, 
And that doesn't demote us in any way. Uh, just as it happens, on Earth, we're the only uh, creatures uh, that, that, of which that's true. But there, I do come across this from students, who, uh, on the other hand, saying, no, what the image of God consists in is that we're set apart from everything else. And on that view, if anything else was in the image of God, that would seem to demote us. Now, I just don't see any reason why I need to entertain, and why I need to accept or, or believe the second view of things. Um, I think that another creature being in the image of God doesn't demote me in any way. Uh, of course, it's important then to get into the, the detail about what we might think about that, but I just basically, I don't see the Imago Dei as intrinsically a competitive affair. Hmm. And then that raises the question if we if we're happy to 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 see these alien life forms as also bearing the imago day then my next question i suppose as a christian is um did jesus come incarnate to them as well like he came incarnate to mm. us and mm. and do they have the same parallel kind of salvation redemptive history that saw god enter into their their um lifeness their humanity but not their humanity because they're not humans uh, die on somehow die on the cross bear their sins rise again is is there a parallel incarnation story as well so i'm going to be a really annoying guest here and just say one or two other things about the image of god because it's just such a such an important topic just to say to listeners you know it's worth thinking what do you think the image of god consists in and there are various traditions uh, and one has been you know, our capacities, like uh, freedom, intellect, will, capacity to love, so on. Seems to me if other creatures elsewhere have that, I'm no less wonderful for still having those things. Other people have talked to, about capacity for relationship. Some people have talked about being God's representative and having a kind of delegated role in the universe. Seems to me I can have that role, we can have that role on Earth. I don't have that role with respect to some planet elsewhere. And maybe God has God's own representatives um, elsewhere so that's uh, another thing to say about the about the image of god is uh, okay maybe that's a what on off kind of yes no thing but the christian tradition has had a lot to say about all creatures bearing the likeness of god in some way you know if everything about everything comes from god then there's nothing that's good or beautiful true noble excellent no excellence about any creature that isn't in some way um, a reflection of uh, of, of who God is. So, sorry, that's just me uh, un unable to resist uh, saying a little bit more about the Imago Dei. But what about the Incarnation? This is, I think, the real touchstone of debate about theology and life elsewhere in the universe. And from, I'd say, before the 20th century, you don't really get anybody entertaining the idea of there being more than one Incarnation. And that's because people think that what happens on Earth is enough to do all the redemptive work that needs to be done. And I, you know, I completely agree with that. But then from the 20th century onwards, you get people willing to ask that question. And I do encourage your, read, your listeners to have a look at a poem by Alice Maynell, a uh, Roman Catholic poet, died, uh, died in the middle-ish, no, early, let me think, 1920 or something like that, 1930. Uh, she was born in um, in the 19th century, and she has this wonderful poem called Christ in the Universe, in which she imagines lots of different interstellar races in the life of the world to come, comparing notes about how God has dealt with them. And she uh, has 
a part of that is that we're telling the story of God's work with us in Christ. And they uh, talk about the, the ways in which they've uh, you know, had God amongst them. Uh, so from the 20th century onwards, it does become uh, a kind of a live option. And I think there are probably five chapters about uh, the incarnation in my uh, astrobiology and Christian doctrine books. So I've got quite a lot to say and you're going to have to <laughs> rein me in. Give us the Cliff Notes version. Give us the... Uh... <laughs> okay, so I, I think that what is really helpful is to be theologically precise. Um, and I think sometimes it is the theology that's a little bit the casualty in discussions with science, that we sort of get so interested in the science that the theology can be the junior partner. And I think it really is important that we're precise about what we mean, because otherwise we can just be talking past one another uh, in terms of... Um, you know, our, our theological conversations. So um, I think that what we wouldn't be talking about is is Jesus coming elsewhere in the universe because Jesus is the human being that is God with us as a human being, God having taken up a human nature. It seems to me the question to have is, does God take up other creaturely natures elsewhere? Um, but I think any talk about there being more than one Jesus it's just theologically imprecise because Jesus is the, the is the divine human being, and there aren't human beings elsewhere in the universe. Then I just I don't think that makes sense, and he's unrepeatable. Um, so I reckon there are two pretty separate conversations that go on in theology about this. One is people asking whether this is even possible, and people take uh, divergent sides on that, and I can point you to people who say this just doesn't make any sense it's impossible for there to be more than one incarnation and then other people who think it is possible and then there are other people who talk about whether it's necessary or not and they're quite different conversations and I think my angle would be that it's possible but not necessary so I don't think there's any reason to say that God taking up a human nature means God is then unable to take up another nature as well but I do think it makes sense to say that the life, death and resurrection of Christ on earth is enough to, to redeem the whole universe. Now, I, well, I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll um, see what you say about that. Can I, um, I mean, it, it's fascinating stuff. And unfortunately, we're coming to the end. And, and uh, I think these are issues which it should be good to explore further, possibly in, in, a, in future episodes. But just before we finish, could I raise an issue which I find very interesting? Uh, and that is the comparison between an artificial intelligence, an intelligent life which we create on Earth, and encountering an alien intelligent life out there in the universe because in both cases there's this fascinating question about how can we know what the significance of this being is how do we know whether this being is indeed conscious or intelligent how do we know whether it can have a relationship with god and um what's your thoughts on that uh, assuming we did make we you know contact with an intelligent being we'd have to ask the question what is their spiritual status you know do we pray with them do we witness to them uh etc and and the same problem with an intelligent apparently intelligent machine i think i'd want to begin by saying that absolutely everything is related to god that, that sort of sense of relationship of all things 
to God as their creator and the source of everything that's good about them and God who is in some sense the destiny of all things. Uh, all things are made by God and for God and um, you know, and, wit- and witness to God and for, for God's delight. Uh, so I, I think I'd want to begin in saying I don't need to import or o- overlay some sort of question of, of relation or relationship. It's always there. It's there for every atom and stone and, and tree, even before you get to anything that's intelligent. So um, any <laughs> there's, there's always the question of working out whether this thing uh, is intelligent or has sentience or not, and you've got the Turing test and so on, and it's a, it's a big uh, question in, in artificial intelligence. But it seems to me that the Christian can assume that in as much as you even have the first flickerings of, of intelligence or sentience, God is going to be the background of that sentience because God is the background of all things. And there's a lot of interesting writing from um, from Jesuits in the 20th century, Rana and de Lubac, I think of as in particular, uh, who, who want to orientate intelligence and consciousness just as such as being always against the backdrop of a kind of inchoate awareness of God. And they think that's just characteristic of intelligence and sentience as such. So I would not have any trouble in saying that wherever there's intelligence uh, there are going to be questions about why is there anything rather than nothing about questions about truth and goodness and so on that are going to point people towards God as the origin of all things. I mentioned thinking about theology in terms of what's possible and in terms of what's necessary and I'm a little bit uneasy about applying any of those categories either of those categories to God as if I knew exactly what is and isn't possible, and certainly I'm a bit wary about telling God what God has or has not to do. But the mid- people in the medieval period, the scholastic theologians, have this wonderful kind of intermediate category of suitability or fittingness. So it's uh, not telling God what to do, uh, but saying that one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that God does the fitting or suitable thing. And when it comes to the idea of there being more than one incarnation, my instinct is to see something suitable or fitting about God drawing alongside other creatures in that way elsewhere. So completely accept the life, death and resurrection of Christ can set right the whole universe. But when I think about what God has done for us, it has been about also being seen face to face seen in a way that's comprehensible to us. Uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about God coming among us in Christ in order to be our friend. And I think if the shoe was on the other foot and there was some species elsewhere that had a really different form of life, different body, uh, to say to them, well, this happened in Nazareth, uh, in Jerusalem. And by the way, it, it sorts everything out. It's true, it would do, but it might be that a human life is just not very comprehensible, not very communicative to them, not doesn't really have that sense of God drawing close to them to be their friend. So although I completely accept that the, the work of Christ avails for everything, I, and I really don't want to say what God has or has not to do, but my instinct, in as much as you're interested in where my theological instinct lies, is that there would be something 
sort of familiarly suitable or fitting or beautiful even about the idea of God uh, drawing near to each creature in its predicament, in its form of life, in a way that parallels what God has done for us uh, in Jesus. But I will let uh, I will let God do uh, whatever God wants to do because it will be perfectly and beautifully uh, fitting or suitable. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense to me from my very uninformed point of view. I think I would definitely tend towards the same same line of thinking. Um, thanks so much, Andrew. This has been such a, a brilliant conversation, both last week and this week. I've learned loads, and I hope our listeners have too. Um, do you want to just quickly uh, explain more about uh, your book when it comes out? What's it called, and how people can get hold of it if they want to dig a bit, well, a lot more deeper into this idea of theology and astrobiology? Yes, it's called astrobiology and christian doctrine is going to come out from cambridge university press towards the end of 2022 and i would say that as well as hoping to help us all be a bit more prepared for how to respond as christians to if there's news of life elsewhere in the universe this topic offers us uh, a really interesting way of looking at some familiar questions from other angles so even from a new angle so even if it turns out that there's no life elsewhere in the universe or that we certainly don't discover it in our lifetime i do think that looking at our traditional christian themes from this perspective uh, offers something quite uh, lively and informative uh, i also mentioned that i talk from time to time about god as the origin and destiny of all things and if people want to pursue that in a more theological and philosophical way i wrote a book called participation in god a study in christian doctrine and metaphysics and that is, um, I think, the most fun book I've ever, uh, ever written. And um, uh, is an exploration of God as the beginning and end of all things. And that might be of interest to some listeners too. Brilliant. Well, um, uh, would really recommend uh, you digging into more of Andrew's work. Um, I, I can't pretend that I've read all of his theology. It's some of it's slightly above my pay grade, but uh, I'm so pleased to have have had the chance uh, to bring you on matters of life and death and 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 talk through some of these ideas. Um, thanks again uh, uh, to for you for listening. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us if you'd like to suggest a guest or a, or a theme you'd like us to dig into by emailing molad m o l a d at premier.org.uk. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.